Welcome to Crashing the War Party. I am joined by my fellow party crasher, Daniel Larson, and right now it is Wednesday morning, and the festivities and lamentations are still going on in many states in the wake of the long election night last night. Lots of results are still shaking out, and by the time you hear this episode, there will be a much clearer picture as to where the Congress stands. But in the second half, we'll hash out some of the early clear results and what that might mean for Washington foreign policy with Eric Sperling. But right now, there seems to be no better time than now to talk about what conservative foreign policy is, since it looks like the Congress, at least in the House, might be shifting towards a majority GOP rule. But like I said, we don't know for sure. Um, But... They will definitely, the Republicans then, that is, will be picking up a few extra seats. And and we kind of want to talk about what a more conservative foreign policy might look like in this Congress or any future Congress. And uh, specifically, we'd like to discuss Nadia Shadlow's uh, new foreign policy piece. Uh, She's a Bush era neocon who used to dole out contracts and grants like candy for aggressive pro Iraq and Afghanistan war boosters for Smith Richardson or the Smith Richardson Foundation. Uh, right now, she is at the Hudson Institute and seems eager to rebrand her stale neoconservative policy into realism because that's what failed interventionists do. They rebrand themselves. In an article, or I'm sorry, yeah, in her recent article for Foreign Policy magazine, she makes a host of assumptions about conservatism, some on the mark, others a bit fatuous and and self-serving. And by the end of the article, just proves to be another Washington courtier who feels left out in the cold by the new right and the realist movement that has captured the attention and ire of the blob. Dan, there is so much to pick apart in this article, but I feel like it's a quintessential window into how former neoconservatives or conservatives, Cold War warriors, whatever you want to call them, are trying to rebrand uh, themselves in the wake of what seems to be a post-Trump or a Trumpian, whatever you want to call it, populist foreign policy reality today. Yeah, well, that, that's right. I, I think the what we see in that article in foreign policy is an exercise in wrapping up standard Republican hawkishness uh, and interventionism in the mantle of traditional conservative principles. So she, she name checks Russell Kirk and Edmund Burke, uh, like, like everyone's <laughs> taught to do in the conservative movement. Yeah. Uh, even though even though nobody ever actually reads what they have to say the rest of the time, <laughs> uh, but but you if you include those two names in your piece, then that that proves that you know what conservatism is, right? Um, and so, I mean, this is a it's a fairly standard move that lots of people coming out of this interventionist uh, tradition uh, do. It's it's, but it isn't persuasive because ultimately it's not really true. Uh, she lists four principles: liberty, sovereignty, competition, and power. And I suppose depending on how you want to define those, you could say, sure, some of those are conservative principles, uh, or or they could be, but they're not uniquely conservative. And some aren't necessarily conservative at all. Um, the the last one has an emphasis on a strong military, which I take to be a, a militarist principle. It's not necessarily conservative uh, in in its means or its goals. Uh, and and of course, there's a strong conservative anti-militarist tradition in this country uh, that, that we 
belong to that goes back a long way. Uh, and that's that doesn't get taken into account at all in, in this discussion of principles. Um, the, uh, the the strange thing is she, she's name-checking Kirk and Burke, but she's doing it in the service of a globe-spanning foreign policy that has very little to do with prudence and wisdom. Yeah, or um, Burke or Kirk. Her, <laughs> right, and her, her you know, so-called conservative statecraft uh, is really only focused on conserving one thing, which is the military-industrial complex with its ever-larger budgets um, for the Pentagon. And, and that's... In practice, that's what it comes down to. Uh, she basically wants to keep everything the same, except throw more money at the military. Um, of course, all in the name of deterrence. But it's, it's, he's always hedging and saying, "This is always for defensive reasons. It's always for deterrence." But we, you know, we hear that all the time, and we know what it leads to. It leads to overcommitment. It leads to uh, entanglement and conflicts we don't need to be in. And so there, there's really no evidence of the prudence that Kirk emphasized in his writing uh, because let's face it, they, they don't, they don't value prudence uh, in, in this kind of so-called conservative foreign policy. Yeah. And I, I feel like her argument and the, her, the motivations behind her article come down to one passage. She says, and I'm quoting now, some of the most vociferous debates among conservatives relate to the U.S. presence abroad. One camp, sometimes called isolationists, or in more fashionable language, restrainers, calls for retrenchment. Representatives of this group have argued that U.S. military's forward presence represents a vision of the United States contriving to impose progressive values to the ends of the earth. The rationale is that U.S. is overextended in the world and that a U.S. presence abroad is a form of cultural arrogance. So clearly, the impetus for this art, uh, article is not only to rebrand herself uh, as a realist conservative, but to sort of punch back against the growing populist conservative non-interventionist view that Trump had opened up space for in his own election and which is, you know, ascendant among a lot of popular conservatives on Capitol Hill right now and in some of the candidates that may or may not be coming to Washington after this election. And I find that, you know, I'm seeing a lot of this in opinion articles and long form foreign affairs articles. There is a real um, chafing against the idea of restraint and how it's been enjoined by both conservatives and uh, liberals, both sides of the fence. And so this is a punching back. And um, she goes back to form. She says, this view of international relations is deeply flawed. Events around the world are not merely a reaction to the United States, but a determination to expand globally and displace the United States is not a response to Washington, but a function of Beijing's strategic goals. She talks about Iran being, um, you know, its regional aspirations flowing directly from the messianic objectives of its ayatollahs. And then she talks about Russia um, engaged in its own uh, imperial, neo-imperial project. So she's going back to form to which the neoconservatives have identified an axis of evil, in a sense, and that it is our role as conservatives, she says, conservatives who respect and enshrine the idea of liberty and sovereignty to 
um, you know, push forward with a foreign policy that will help um, break, you know, this authoritarian hold on Iran, you know, Russia, Ukraine, and, and, and these other, and these other regions that are under the sway of bad guys. So I feel like there's, you know, there's a lot going on here. She seems to be a, another neocon in search of a home, you know, like a snail trying to find a shell. And I think they, these cold war warrior types and neocons really want to own conservative foreign policy. And I don't think we should let them. No, absolutely, we shouldn't. And I mean, I just uh, one thing on the restrainer uh, facts that she takes in the, the article. Uh, the the only thing that she links to, the only argument that is even vaguely uh, sort of pro restraint that she links to, uh, is an op ed by uh, three men uh, that either don't work on foreign policy regularly at all, or in, in my opinion, don't really have credibility as advocates of restraint, uh, based on their their previous views and based on their their some of their current arguments. Um, and so to, to claim that those people speak for most restrainers, uh, I think is, is misleading at best. And, and she, I think she chooses them because she wants to make it into a sort of a, a culture war division. Uh, when I think for a lot of restrainers, that isn't the issue at all. The issue is not, uh, necessarily that we're imposing, uh, a certain set of cultural values on others, it's that it's that we're it's simply that we're meddling in places that we shouldn't be, but regardless of what values we may or may not be pr- promoting, uh, we, we we simply shouldn't be in most of these places. And this this brings me back to this principle of sovereignty that she talks about. She she touts sovereignty, yeah, uh, as as central. She says the respect for national sovereignty is central to the preservation of liberty and maintenance of a stable international order. But we know from the record and from from current positions that movement conservative and Republican policymakers take. Uh, is, is that contempt for the sovereignty of other states and a willingness to sow instability and disorder in the name of American leadership are, are very popular among these people. They they embrace that kind of interference in other people's affairs all the time, and so they they don't respect national sovereignty. When, when they when they refer to sovereignty, they're always meaning it only to refer to ours, and it never refers to anybody else's. And and even then they don't I don't think they really mean it. It's just a, a way of trying to guard against the charge of being a globalist, right? Well, I'm not a globalist. I believe in national sovereignty, right? Uh, but but in practice, they think that that means that it is the rule, the role of our nation to police the rest of the world uh, and, and interfere in everybody else's business as much as possible. Uh, so I, I think we could respect national sovereignty. And that means non-interference and non-intervention, uh, and and she's trying to classify that as, uh, you know, benighted uh, and backwards and so on, uh, you know, which is typical enough. But it, again, it's clear that whatever she's selling it doesn't really have very much to do with preserving our liberty here. Uh, because what she's talking about is pursuing an imperial foreign policy that comes at the cost of constitutional liberty That's right. here in the United States. And so it's she she tries to link liberty and, and empire or liberty and hegemony as going hand in hand when when really the, the one requires you to sacrifice the other. And if conservatives are committed to the preservation of our liberties, then we have to 
try to scale back that foreign policy and all of the the damage that it does. Uh, it's, it's interesting thinking about Russell Kirk, uh, whom she uh, quotes, or she at least refers to, that he had a list of principles of conservatism, uh, many of which uh, would not fit in very well with the foreign policy vision that she has. Um, for instance, he um, he talks about the need for prudent restraints upon power and upon human passions. And so I think that it, that would imply, if you apply it to foreign policy, a desire to limit the power of the warfare and surveillance state and to check the passions that have so often led us into unnecessary wars. And and so that's why the, the omission of prudence from her list of principles is so so important right. and shows that, that her kind of conservatism, so, such as it is, is at best very shallow and I think really is not even conservatism. And so that's uh, that, that's the most revealing part of it, I think. Next up, we have Eric Sperling. Eric Sperling is the executive director of the nonpartisan advocacy organization Just Foreign Policy, headquartered on Capitol Hill. He previously worked as a staffer in Congress for pro-diplomacy champions, including Ro Khanna and Congressman John Conyers, and has been a leader in the Yemen War Powers movement, which had, you know, as Dan and I have talked about on, on this show, had been responsible for pulling together and passing a resolution uh, for congressional war powers in, in Yemen in terms of ending U.S. assistance to Saudi Arabia in that war, unfortunately, had been vetoed by President Trump. But I know and Eric has been a pivotal uh, member of, of that group and is still fighting the good fight on that front. Uh, welcome, Eric, to Crashing the War Party. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's really uh, exciting to be here after listening to so many so many great episodes. Oh well, thank you. Um, yeah, and it's exciting for you to be here on the week of the election, the midterm election. As as we're recording, as we said in the first segment, that uh, a lot of races are still up in the air. We are, have yet to declare that the House is firmly in Republican control, though it looks like it's going in in that direction. And the Senate races um, that they are um, still waiting to hear from are virtually a toss-up. So by the time the show is published on, on Friday, the picture might be different. But I think we are looking for Republican takeover at, at, of the House at the very least. And I was wondering if you could maybe Talk a little bit, Eric, about where you see things on this Wednesday morning after the midterm elections in terms of foreign policy. Yeah, well, I think from, you know, the perspective that we all share, which I think is, uh, you know, skepticism about, you know, the ability of U.S. military or, or U.S. interventionism to, you know, kind of a healthy skepticism about, you know, its ability to effectuate uh, a positive change abroad. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of interesting opportunities, both, you know, we see a number of, of progressive, uh, new young progressive members from, you know, Maxwell Frost is his first kind of Democrat Gen Z member who's, you know, Cuban background and uh, progressive minded, um, you know, to to others like um, uh, like Summer Lee and, and, and Greg Kassar. And so, you know, that that kind of that 
that progressive uh, group is growing, even as kind of the Democratic majority it becomes a minority, we still have a bigger share of, of those members who have been very open, always very open and often somewhat active, um, you know, on a range of, of progressive issues. And then you have on, on the Republican side, kind of the growing contingent of, of you, know, you know, that kind of varies from you know, anti-war to, you know, generally, you know, more you know, also skeptical about, you know, whether U.S. funds and, and, and you know, whether the U.S. has the uh, expertise and the, and the reason to be involved abroad. And so I think, you know, as we've done in the past with conflicts from Yemen to Syria uh, and many others, you know, there's going to be some potential for creative, uh, you know, work that can kind of bridge that right-left gap um, and, and, and kind of get things done in, in, a, in a bipartisan way that isn't the typical centrist bipartisan way, but is kind of the, you know, kind of the, the more libertarian and, and progressive left uh, coming together to, to oppose, you know, harmful U.S. foreign policy. So it sounds like you're a bit hopeful. I know that a lot of these folks are well in the minority in terms of like their foreign policy approaches and being more restraint oriented, particularly on, on the right. But it does sound like you're you see that there's some at least momentum uh, for our shared perspective on uh, U.S. foreign policy. Yeah, I think I, you know, try to stay generally hopeful uh, because there are. It is you know pretty dark times as we're seeing uh, you know pretty expansive U.S. role in, in a wide range of a wide range of places around the world, um, including this you know pretty serious uh, conflict you know taking place on on Russia's border. Um, but you know, I think at least there are definitely opportunities, things to explore, uh, and new relationships to to, to build. And uh, you know, and I think you know, the upside of of having you know, the Republicans, which, you know, limited upside, but, you know, depending on, on who they are. But, you know, one upside is, you know, you can try some different foreign policy approaches that maybe, you know, wouldn't be as, as common, you know, with with progressives. And so I think, you know, there's a different tone, a different style. And at least, you know, for the work we do, that brings some, uh, you know, some opportunities and makes it kind of interesting. But, but you know, I'd say overall, I think it is a tough picture. You know, we do have, uh, you know, some very powerful hawkish forces uh, that are also just as strong as ever or maybe stronger than ever in some ways. Sure. And thanks for coming on the show, Eric. It's good to have you on. Uh, speaking of some of those strong hawkish forces, uh, one of the things that we will be looking at uh, if the Republicans do take over is uh, a change in leadership on the major committees uh, that you know, are concerned with uh, oversight of the military and foreign policy. Um, Mike McCall is expected to be uh, in charge of Foreign Affairs Committee if Republicans get the majority. Mike Rogers would be uh, in charge of the Armed Services Committee. Uh, and both are reliably hawkish across the board. Uh, they, they were cheerleaders for all of the, the most aggressive moves that Trump made uh, and, and have been hawks uh, long before Trump was here. Um, do you see a serious split over foreign policy issues in the next Congress among Republicans uh, or do you think uh, most of them are going to defer to their hawkish leadership uh, in general? Yeah, I think, you know, this is the other opportunity it provides is because we do see a dynamic, you know, as we saw with the Yemen war, where, you know, when when Donald Trump was president, it actually created a lot of opportunities for Democrats who maybe, you know, generally, you know, supported the policy when the Democrat was president, but they're more willing to to, to challenge, you know, the Republican president. The same could be the case here, where I think, you know, and that's, I think, the job of, of folks, you know, such as yourselves and us, we all share the same kind of principled approach to foreign policy where, you know, we care about the issues, you know, regardless of kind of the partisan benefit of it. 
Um, and so I think that's an opportunity where, you know, there, there could be a, a number of Republicans who may have been much less likely to be critical under President Trump and, and maybe w- willing to take a stand on issues like war powers or, you know, maybe willing to push back against and question, you know, U.S. role abroad in a range of contexts. So I think that is, is the opportunity. But I, I would say, yeah, I think as far as, you know, the chair switching over from Meeks um, of H, uh, on HVAC, um, who in some ways has been some, one of the more progressive chairs of, um, you know, at least on, on Latin America, certainly one of the, you know, the most progressive we've seen. He's taken a lot of really good stances in support of engagement in the region uh, with Cuba and Venezuela. And, and, you know, same with, you know, Chair Smith, you know, while, you know, both of these members are, you know, these chairmen are, are you know, have not been as progressive as they could be. They're at least, you know, willing to engage with us and they at least, you know, uh, pay, you know, they, they're, they pay some, at least some lip service and are willing to engage with folks who, who are seeking good views. So I do think that is going to be a loss, but I think what we can gain is, um, you know, hopefully an opportunity to, to, to actually work with these, with the, the minority, uh, you know, more progressive minority in some instances and, and, and push back against that as well. Sure. And when speaking specifically about Yemen, I know that there is a new war powers resolution that's been in the works uh, this year and uh, they're trying to, to, uh, bring it forward. Uh, what what do you think the chances are uh, for passage of a new war powers resolution on Yemen uh, in the new year uh, if there is a narrowly Republican-controlled House? Uh, do you think the Republican leadership would even allow it to come up for a vote? Well, I do think, so this is gets into some of the delightful kind of details of rules, uh, you know, House rules and Senate rules. But I do think that there uh, there has been a history of Republicans honoring that um, and actually, in recent years, we've seen members of the House Rules Committee pressuring the current chairman, Jim McGovern, on uh, not allowing, you know, on, on actually blocking war powers resolution. So that is a position they've staked out. And I think that there's a lot of support for it, uh, you know, across uh, a pretty even a wider range of Republicans than would otherwise be, you know, skeptical of. A foreign policy that you know that that is a principle. So I do think we could see that be honored. You know the way the war powers resolution works is that it gets expedited treatment. Uh, so even if uh, a House leadership doesn't want it to come up for a vote, under it's supposed to get a vote either way. And so I do think that's very possible. Um, and what we've seen with recent votes on on Yemen and on um, and on Syria uh, war powers votes is that we get somewhere we get several dozen Republicans. And I think that number could increase with some other Republicans that have joined uh, uh, in this election. So I think it, you know, it's, it is very possible. Um, right now we have over 125 co-sponsors in the House and the Senate. And I think that number could, could grow. Um, and especially yeah, if, if uh, this new crop of, of kind of more you know, war skeptical Republicans uh, learn about it and, and decide to, to join on. Yeah, well, that's that's encouraging to hear. I'm, I hope that that's the case. Uh, and one other area that seems like it might, it could be ripe for uh, some positive changes, is in policies towards Venezuela and Cuba. Uh, one of the reactions that I saw most often uh, in response to the the blowout losses that Democrats suffered in Florida is that there might be a silver lining in that, in that Democrats no longer have to worry about trying to pander the hardline voters in Florida. Uh, about Venezuela and Cuba policy, that they would then be free to pursue, uh, let's say, uh, more uh, more sensible policies or, or less uh, 
obviously failed policies of, of the kind that we've seen over the last uh, many decades. Uh, do you anticipate any uh, noticeable improvement in those policies uh, as a result of the election, or at least do you see a, do you see an opening for improving those policies? Yeah, well, I think the final results were even much worse than many hoped for the Democrats. Um, there was a there was a Miami Herald editorial board uh, piece last night that basically said this is a, now a red uh, MAGA state, and it's not going to be purple again unless something very dramatic changes. And so, you know, we definitely have people in Washington who support the policy because they oppose and want to, you know, they want to ensure that, you know, kind of the left wing government in Cuba doesn't have success. You know, and there are other people who say, no, I, I think it's a failed policy or, or it's wrong to punish innocent people in Cuba for the actions of their government. But we can't change it because of Florida. You know, and one of the sad things, I think, looking back, historians will, will look back and say, you, you know, it won't really seem that reasonable that, well, we had to starve those people because of Florida. You know, and I think it's so it would be nice if we could kind of remove that as, as one of the reasons, because I think it's it's something that, you know, it. It has really been been tragic. Um, so I think there's definitely an opportunity. And the other thing that has created an opportunity, which I think is there's some space for right-left collaboration, is on the issue of, of of migration. Given that, you know, actually the Trump policies, which are also backed by people like DeSantis and others, of promoting sanctions um, and, and tightening sanctions on Cuba and Venezuela, well, they have the effect, and, and everyone knows they have the effect of causing this migrant crisis that is is we're currently facing. Um, and so I think there is an opportunity for Democrats um, or Republicans who, who really truly care about the issue to say, you know, this policy isn't working. You know, whatever one thinks of those governments and their failings, you know, we shouldn't be contributing to creating that migrant crisis. Um, and so I think there's it's really an opportunity for someone, whether on the right or left, to take that up. And I think uh, you know, the Biden administration has signaled, signaled some interest in that. And so I think we're we're definitely hopeful to see if we can get to a policy that actually puts the well-being of the Cuban and Venezuelan people first and doesn't kind of continue this this old-fashioned method of, you know, if we hurt the, the people enough, they may eventually rise up, which, of course, hasn't, hasn't worked. Eric, I want to ask you about Ukraine. I know leading up to this election, there was some assumption that there's plenty of assumption that the Republicans would do much better, that there would be a red wave, and they might have more influence on the Ukraine policy, specifically Ukraine aid. And we all know where uh, Kevin McCarthy had made some comments about no longer giving uh, a blank check to Ukraine and being more circumspect about the aid going. I know that there has been some anticipation that the Biden administration might put forward a, an even bigger package, a $50 billion aid package during the lame duck session in, in December before they all leave for, for the holidays. How do you think that uh, Ukraine policy might be affected by the new, a new potential Republican held house? Yeah, I think, you know, given the tight, you know, kind of the, the, the pretty narrow majority, um, I, I'm not clear that there will be much of an, an ability for, for those Republicans to block anything immediately. You know, if I were the White House and I was really set on ensuring Ukraine got a, an aid package, I, I wouldn't be so worried to rush it forward because I would feel pretty confident that they're going to at least get another one through. But I do think these voices, these more populist voices on the right in particular, you know, they could. I think there there is some risk that those voices, you know, it sounds very intuitive to a lot of Americans, even though I think 
you know, economists would say, well, we can spend 100 billion in Ukraine and also spend, you know, whatever, trillions here. Um, you know, the average person to the average American, you know, $500 million every week or two sounds like a lot of money. Um, so I do think there's some potential for that to, to grow. But I think, um, you know, it'll also, I think, in large part depend on kind of how you know, energy prices go. And, and I think that is going to be also something that will get more attention. I think the American people, the polls have kind of split on this, but, you know, some polls say, well, I'm willing to pay more at the pump for to support Ukraine. Others don't, you know, indicate kind of the opposite. I think my sense is that Americans don't fully understand kind of the role that the U.S. sanctions approach, um, you know, has had. Um, and so I think there's, it's hard to say, but, you know, if I were the White House after, after the election, I would feel pretty comfortable about the ability to get uh, ongoing weapons for now. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you there. I have a, an, a another interesting question related to Ukraine. As you know, over the last week, the White House has seemed more open than ever to opening up diplomatic channels with Russia over Ukraine. And this seemed to me, you know, in direct response, and we know some of the politics here, the congressional progressives had put out this letter. It was a very benign letter about you know, using uh, diplomacy to perhaps start, you know, in, engaging both sides and, and and try to bring an end to the war. And then they had to retract the letter out, out of fierce criticism. And then the White House starts saying stuff like, oh, we've been talking to the Russians the entire time. And we're now talking to Zelensky about keeping the doors open and signaling that he wants to talk with Russia. So there's been a lot of diplomacy talk. Do you think, what do you think will happen to that now under uh, circumstances that seem more favorable to the Democrats in that they didn't lose as many seats, that uh, there is, you know, the country is as split as ever, that there wasn't a tremendous red wave. Trump himself seems to be on the back foot in terms of what um, his where his popularity is, does this change the dynamic, or do you think maybe this might be even more single more um, uh, of a shift towards di- diplomacy? Yeah, I think you know there there was always a a, a split, uh, you know, a small split in the White House that was reported, you know, in past years, um, and I wonder if you know, and we've heard President Biden, uh, you know, repeatedly say both, you know, maybe around six months ago and just last month that. You know, he's concerned that Putin doesn't have uh, an off ramp, you know, and that's the kind of pragmatic thinking that we, you know, dream that, you know, Biden would have. And, you know, he had some of those pragmatic kind of points of view on things like, you know, Afghanistan and Libya at different moments. And so, you know, I think there's a chance that, you know, given that according to U.S. intel, you know, Russia has failed, you know, spectacularly, right? They expected Russia to be able to take over. You know, so this is an incredible historic you know, unbelievable win for Ukraine. And, and what Russia has right now, you know, they've lost, you know, tens of thousands potentially dead or injured. Um, their economy is in trouble. You know, I think there have to be some voices that are saying, you know, this was a much better outcome than we ever thought possible. You know, we should lock it in and not, you know, allow the world to stay in turmoil when we're already getting an outcome that is so much more favorable to Ukraine's interest and to the world's interest than, than was expected, where, you know, there was some talk where Russia could take Kiev in, in just a few weeks. Um, so, I, I, you know, I'd like to think that that's, that, that sentiment is still there, um, you know, and I think, 
you know, you do see Jake Sullivan, you know, he initially came out with a thing which was the foreign policy for the middle class, you know, and you and he, they haven't returned to that. But you, you do hope that there's that kind of mindset, you know, is still present there. Like, what is U.S. foreign policy really doing for the middle class? And I think a prolonged war, um, there's, you know, the evidence is that that would be really, really bad for the middle class in the U.S. and Europe and potentially catastrophic, according to the World Food, Food Program, for tens of millions of people in vulnerable countries. Um, so you hope that that sentiment's there uh, because it really has been an amazing win uh, for Ukraine uh, and, for, and for U.S. policy against Russia. And so you, know, you hope that, you know, that now they'd start to want to lock that in through diplomacy. That's right. the hope anyway. Exactly. And that it wasn't just election time pressure on the Biden administration uh, to to take that particular tack right before the election. And I I tend to agree with you. I think that there it, there has been some honest uh, signaling from the White House that this is where they want the policy to go from here. But, you know, we'll see. We'll see in the in the next few weeks. Um, I think we've run out of time. So I'm really uh, I'm really appreciative that you had come on at, at when you did, Eric. You have a lot to say and a lot of great insights and hope to have you on, on the show again, you know, as 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 developments unfold. Yeah, anytime. Thanks so much. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.